So I want to thank you all for coming back tonight. And as you have already heard, tonight is a night of answering questions. And once again, this was one of the particular evenings that was added into our Sunday nights at Sherwood about maybe six to seven months ago. And it kind of comes in addition to nights of prayer, nights of study, nights of worship, nights of rest, community, as well as vision. So you will notice that uh, I once again have my, I guess, board, uh, writing board, uh, tablet, whatever you might want to call this. And, and I've, I've got our graphics here. Before I used to have just two people smiling. And for your edification, I put one of them with a surprise on their face today. <laughs> Because there might be some of you that are really happy about what you hear, and others might be like, oh, I never knew that. So anyway, there's one of those for each of you. Um, so tonight, I am answering those questions that came in earlier in the spring, and we opened it up asking people to share different questions that they had about Scripture, about life, about the Christian walk, about doctrine, about church practice, uh, just things happening within culture, all of those pieces. And many people responded, gave a lot of great questions, and we collected them together. And then I'm just kind of working through those questions piece by piece. So I'm trying to get to maybe five to ten questions on each of the different nights that we do one of these services. Tonight, by the grace of God, we will work our way through six of those questions. So we are also advertising these questions uh, in advance, or at least the general topics, uh, just to let people know kind of what is going to be coming up on Sunday nights. And if you're looking for a place to find out what topics are going to be addressed, one of the best places is in the Friday email that comes out from Sherwood. If you want to sign up for that, simply go to the website, sherwoodbaptist.net, and then right there in the very center of the home page is a block that says newsletter. If you click on that, it gives you a chance to be able to sign up. So please remember that the answers that are being given tonight are one guy's approach to try to biblically and reasonably work through a topic to the best of my understanding, as well as to the best of my understanding based on the fact the question was submitted anonymously, and sometimes I don't know all the pieces that are coming into that. So if I happen to be addressing one of your questions tonight out of the six, and maybe I miss a part, please don't get mad at me. I just don't know what I don't know. So also, if there is a topic, and we're going to get into a couple of those tonight, that the question that is asked actually requires a broader understanding than just the specific piece the person was asking for. So if it touches on things that require more of a, a comprehensive knowledge, then I'm going to try to provide those pieces and show why that is needed for the evening. Um, also, there's going to be some of these that we get into. I don't think there's going to be any tonight, but there's going to be some of these that we get into that I am simply going to have to say, I don't know because Scripture does not say. So some of the questions have come in the form of, why did God do or why did God not do something? And Scripture doesn't tell us. And if Scripture doesn't tell us, then it's simply going to be assumption on my side, and I try to remain silent in those areas if Scripture is silent in those areas. So that being said, we're going to start with our first question. Please remember that I am reading the questions to you all as they came to us. So here's the question. As the spiritual leader of my house, what is the balance between being a good provider and protector of my family 
and having enough faith to rely on God to provide for and to protect my family? It's a good question. So that is a question that to answer it, it touches on this bigger part of stewardship. Um, because of the fact it's talking about being a provider, if we understand what God's calling us to there, we have to understand some bigger pieces on stewardship. So I want to try to answer that through a lens of stewardship, but I also want to answer it in the way that I ask that same question myself. In fact, there's many times that I'm wrestling through the side of God. Am I walking by faith in this area? I know you've called me to provide for my family, but I don't know, how much do I give? How much do I save? How much do we spend? There's a part of that that you're simply asking God for guidance in. So I wanna try to answer it based on a stewardship perspective. So part of the answer comes back to balance. And here's what I mean. Uh, As a man, where's the balance between fulfilling the role God gave as temporary provider and protector for the family and trusting God who is the ultimate provider and protector for the family. So I wanna talk about provider for just a moment within the context of the home and specifically in the context of finances. There's a number of ways that, that men are called to be providers. We provide discipline and instruction and oversight and leadership and, and all of those areas, but I wanna talk for just a moment specifically on the area of providing financially. So as the spiritual head of the home, God has given me, and I'm talking about my family, the responsibility to provide financially for my home. For me, that includes going to work, that includes being compensated for going to work, and that also includes taking that compensation in order to pay for the needs that come with our family. So those needs many times come into different categories, and I I just listed these quickly. There's immediate needs. That would be things like food, shelter, clothing, those things that everybody needs. Also, future needs. That would include things like retirement or savings or upkeep of different pieces from cars and homes and pieces like that. Also, spiritual needs. That would be things like tithes, offerings, as well as financial blessings for others. And then I would also put another classification in there, and that is preventative or possible needs. And that's things like insurance policies and medical care and unforeseen expenses. Now, I know that there's all sorts of other pieces that come into this, but these are just some needs that we're constantly working through, constantly trying to provide for. Now, according to what we find in Scripture, God owns it all. Doesn't matter if your name is on the title, doesn't matter if your name is on the deed, ultimately God owns it all. There is a wonderful passage, I memorized it when I went through Crown Ministries probably 25 years ago. It's over in 1 Chronicles chapter 29 and it says it like this, everything in the heavens and earth is yours, O Lord, and this is your kingdom. We adore you as being in control of everything. Riches and honor come from you alone, and you are the ruler of all mankind. Your hand controls power and might, and it is at your discretion that men are made great and given strength. Now, if we truly believe that God owns it all, then we also have to see that we are simply stewards of what he possesses. 
when you're caring for somebody else's resources and their possessions, then you want to care for those things according to their desires. And we find God's desires when it comes to resources found in his word. He gives instructions. So he talks to us about giving. For example, we find in Proverbs 3, it tells us, honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruit of all that you produce. Also, 1 Timothy 6 tells us to be generous and ready to give and share. Then we find Matthew 23, it's Jesus condemns the Pharisees for their tedious commitment to tie things all the way down to like mint and garlic, but then not obeying God's commands on weightier instructions like justice and mercy and faithfulness. And then Jesus gives a statement. He basically says, you ought to do those things without neglecting the others as well. In other words, what you're doing is right, but you also don't need to neglect these other bigger pieces. So as best I can tell from Scripture, as best I can tell through study, the tithe or 10% is a great starting place for a life of generosity. Above and beyond the tithe comes into what's referred to as offerings. And then you can go even beyond that when it comes to blessing people financially. Many times that's on an individual level. So in the word, God gives instructions to those who are temporary providers about what you're to do with his resources. Also, we find in the word, God gives instructions about borrowing, saving, planning, caring for our families, and even hoarding our wealth. All of that is found in Scripture. Proverbs 22, it says, the borrower is servant to the lender. Every time you use a credit card or take out a loan, let that passage ring in your mind. The borrower is servant to the lender. Also, Matthew chapter 6, it tells us we cannot serve God and money. Ultimately, we're going to focus more on one than on the other. Proverbs 13, it says, a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. Now, if we believe that, if we live by that, then somehow savings needs to be a part of that financial plan. Also, Luke 14, it reminds us to count the cost before we get into something to make sure we have enough resources to complete what it is that we're getting into. That requires planning. Also, 1 Timothy 5, it tells us, that we are to provide for our family and especially those who are of the household of faith. And then let me give you one more. That is Proverbs 28. It talks to us about a stingy man who hastens after wealth, but poverty will come upon him. The reason I bring that up is because Scripture addresses finances on this broad, broad perspective. How to save, what to give, where to give, how do you plan correctly. All of those things are part of the financial plan that we find in Scripture when it comes to resources. All of that information is important for this reason. We only have confidence in our actions and decisions if those actions and decisions align with God's will. When the person is asking, where's the balance between me being this provider and protector of my family and still trusting God as ultimate provider and protector. When you're trying to find the balance, balance is found in obedience. If we are not doing what God clearly tells us to do, we're already out of balance in that. We need to see what Scripture has to say on the topic. So if we're following the clear instructions of Scripture in regard to money and stewardship, 
then we're now ready to answer some of the more detailed questions, usually involving amounts. How much do I spend? How much do I save? How much do I give? And all of that is in this balance area. While Scripture provides general parameters, there's also a part of Scripture in which we are to be open to the leading of the Holy Spirit and we keep our hands open to whatever it is that God might have put in. The reason this is important is because if you're saying, just give me the details, just tell me exactly what to do, I'll do it and we're done, you're not going to be in balance with what God would have you to do. Because sometimes God's going to say, nope, we're going to go above and beyond that in this moment. Sometimes there's an adjustment that he does along the way. So we need to be open to the leading of the Spirit of God. So on another part of this, not only is this a question about balance, it's also about fear, greed, lack of faith, and selfishness. So let me explain it again from our perspective. When Bree and I get together and we talk about finances, and we do this multiple times a year, we always do it the first of the year, kind of planning out for the year, and then there's also multiple checkups along the way. Whenever we get together and talk about finances, we're talking about how much do we give, how much do we save, and also how much do we spend. Apart from the guidance of the Holy Spirit, it is very easy to emphasize one to the detriment of the other two. Here's what I mean. If we spend everything we make, it's usually motivated out of selfishness. It's like, we made it, it's ours, we're just going to spend it all on ourselves. Selfishness leads to poor financial decisions. If we give everything we make, then we're unable to meet our own needs now as well as in the future. So we're also bypassing other parts of Scripture. If we save everything that we make, it is often motivated out of fear of the future, out of greed, or out of lack of trust that God is not going to provide for our needs somewhere out in the future. So we need to hoard it all to ourselves. All I can say is fear, greed, lack of faith, and selfishness can lead people to make a lot of poor, foolish financial decisions. Philippians chapter 4 verse 19 is unbelievably clear. My God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God is our ultimate provider. And while he gives us clear instructions within scripture about what to do when it comes to resources, all I can say is there is always going to be an element of faith when it comes to trusting God with resources as the provider. Jobs come and go. Markets crash. Investments sink. Unexpected expenses can wipe out our established savings. Medical bills can add up, even if you've got great insurance and even if you've tried to prepare for the future. Our ability, our health to get up and to go earn a living, those things are not guaranteed. There is always going to be a trust factor that is involved in this. Now, there's another part of that, and very quickly, let me talk about this protector role as well. As the spiritual head of the home, men are to protect their families. That is physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally. Scripture is clear in the idea of the fact that we are to be protectors of those that we love. Being a protector requires us sometimes to set boundaries, 
Being a protector many times is about keeping the influence of the world at a distance. It includes praying over our family, training our kids, preparing them to live within this world. It includes shepherding a child's heart, giving them chances to be able to grow up according to God's design. Now, I bring that up for this reason. You can do everything that you know to do right, and you're still going to have to trust God to protect your family. You cannot be there at all times. You don't know what is coming in the future. You don't know all the temptations they are going to see or the trials that they are going to face. As best you can, you are to protect. You are to provide. But at the end of the day, it doesn't take away from the fact God is the ultimate protector and he is the ultimate provider. And we have to stay submitted to him and we have to keep faith that he alone can do what he can do. So part of being a provider and protector is knowing what God says. Part is acting upon what God says. And part is trusting God at every step along the way that he is ultimately going to protect and to provide. So that being said, here's our next question. So this one comes in the area of revival. The question is, what are the required ingredients to produce an atmosphere perfectly primed to receive an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, such as revival? How can we prepare ourselves? Great question. So I want to address this one from three different parts. I want to address it biblically. What does God say about the area of revival? I want to address it individually in the sense of what can you do as an individual person to have a revived heart, a refreshed heart, or a, a state of a greater awareness of knowing God and loving him. And then I also want to talk about it from a corporate perspective or a church-wide perspective. So first part is what scripture says. First, the Bible does not mention the word revival but it definitely mentions pieces that are associated with revival. So here's a number of passages. Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring, restoring the soul. Uh, Psalm 51, 10 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Uh, God said to the prophet Isaiah, I dwell in the high and holy place to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. Uh, Psalm chapter 51, verse 12, it says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And then finally, in Acts chapter 3, it speaks of times of refreshing that come in the presence of the Lord. So while the Bible does not specifically come out and use the word revival, it does talk about God restoring the soul, renewing the spirit, reviving the heart, and refreshing the person. Now, all of that is important. If we're going to talk about what are the pieces, the, the key pieces that kind of prime the atmosphere for revival, we also need to talk about what are the issues that make revival necessary. If you don't understand the issues that are kind of bringing the soul down, bringing weariness, distracting a person from intimacy with God, then you miss the other side of the equation. So reviving or refreshing are necessary because life has a way of simply taking our focus off of God and placing it on other things. 
we live lives, we work jobs, we take care of our families, we help our kids with homework, we go to ball practices, we go to dance recitals, we pay bills, we come home, we watch TV a little bit if we want to do something like that, and, and we, we serve in churches, we, we do things, and none of those things are necessarily bad. Here's the issue. The things take focus, they take time, and they could distract our attention off of who God is as our first and greatest love and our greatest pursuit. Busyness replaces intimacy, and good robs us of best. Now, that is actually the positive side of distraction. There's also a negative side that comes with it. As things take our focus, sin many times diverts our affection. Sometimes it starts out small, Sometimes it's cracks in the character. Sometimes it is questionable decisions. Sometimes it is justifying the things that we used to reject. Uh, we increasingly find ourselves calloused to the things of God and suddenly aware and alive and awakened to the pleasures of the world. That's what happens when distractions take our focus away and sin begins to divert our affection for Christ. Those things come in, and when it happens, it brings weariness to the soul. It brings a lethargy in your spiritual life, an indifference to the things of God. But God is very gracious to us along the way. If we're listening to what the Spirit is prompting us, the Spirit begins to prompt us and give glimpses of what life was like when we first became a believer. There's glimpses of there used to be a time when you served with greater joy. You, you'll see a, a young believer, and they're on fire for God, and all of a sudden there's a, an awareness of the fact, man, I can't remember the last time I was that excited about the things of God. God gives us those glimpses, almost like breadcrumbs of revival, to lead us back to the fact that something is missing and it needs to be addressed. So when David says, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. That is exactly what every believer needs from time to time. There needs to be a restoration of what it was like when we first met Christ. So I want to give four concepts out of Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. This is when Jesus is addressing the church in Ephesus. He has give, given commendation after commendation. But then he gets to this one part where he says, but I have this one thing against you. You've left your first love. And in that particular section, he helps us to see that there are these four concepts in Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, that help the individual person step back onto a path of revival or awakening. Here's the four words. Recognize, remember, repent, return. Those four concepts are found in Revelation 2, 4 and 5. Here's what I mean by that. Recognize, the state of your spiritual life. If you've left your first love, recognize it. Admit it. Don't try to explain it away. Don't try to justify it. Don't try to say, well, when this season gets over, when, when this job gets finished, or when ball practice is complete, or something like that, if you recognize that there is a lack there, that you have left your first love in that, just simply recognize that spiritual state. The next part is remember from where you've fallen. Go back and look at the difference between when you first came to faith in Christ or when you were growing in your walk with Christ. Look back and remember where you came from. 
What happened to that joy? Where's the fire that used to be there? Uh, what are the, the pieces that have interfered, that have taken your passion and your obedience or that pursuit of God? Recognize and remember those things. Then repent of spiritual apathy, selfish living, and sinful pursuits. Repent is agree with God on those matters. To repent means you go in one direction and you stop and you go the other direction by the grace of God. Repent is an about face. And then the last part is return to him as your first love. Now, let's put those pieces together. We've now got a biblical overview of revival or reviving or awakening. And we've also talked through some of the pieces specific to the individual. Now, why do I bring that up? Because sometimes people can think that the only way they can experience revival, if it is this earth-shattering, massive movement of God that has thousands and thousands and thousands of people that are involved in it. And what I want to tell you is that you alone as an individual can live in a revived, renewed, refreshed state of walking with Jesus. You don't have to wait on 1,500 other people to get on board with it. So if you're saying, well, man, I just can't experience revival until that happens. No, you might not experience corporate revival until God sees fit to bring it. But on an individual level, you can walk in that restored joy and that excitement, that passion with God. That is between you and the Lord. Recognize, remember, repent, return. Recognize, remember, repent, return over and over again it's the same process now revival as we find it through the terms of scripture the ideas of scripture is this intersection of an awakened soul a repentant heart and a restored passion for intimacy with christ so now that we've seen the concept kind of biblically we've also seen it individually Let's talk for just a moment about it on a large scale, a corporate scale. And the thing that I'm going to say might not sound very encouraging, but I need to say it if we're going to frame this well. The movement of the Holy Spirit cannot be manipulated, cannot be scheduled, and cannot be demanded. We have to be clear here. God will do as God desires. And if God desires to bring revival... He's going to bring revival. In fact, if God desires to bring revival, he doesn't have to use any of our metrics in order to bring it. All he has to do is say, now, and revival sweeps through. But at the same time, if God chooses not to send revival, as we're describing on a corporate level, that is his prerogative, and it is his prerogative that aligns with his perfect wisdom and aligns with his glory. Somehow in the process, he knows what is coming, he knows what is best, and he knows what will best bring glory to him. So there's all these pieces come together, and we need to say it like this. Everything I'm describing at this point needs to be put under the heading of steps that align with the Spirit's movement in the past, not steps that guarantee the Spirit's movement in the future. We can only look back and say, these are the things that were in alignment when these massive movements of God came forward. So J.I. Packer said, these are indicators 
preceding revival. In other words, when you look at the revival movements, these were things that were happening in advance of that. There was a greater awareness of God's presence. There was a responsiveness to God's word, a sensitivity to sin, a liveliness in community. That is, there's a revived church that's full of life and joy and power in the Holy Spirit. And there's also a faithfulness in testimony. That is, an evangelistic as well as an ethical overspill that comes into the world. Now, if you think about those pieces for just a moment, awareness of God's presence, responsiveness to God's word, sensitivity to sin, liveliness of community, faithfulness and testimony. Sometimes we're not nearly as far away from revival as you might think. The pieces many times are right there. It's primed. All I can say is this morning, worship service, music going on, all I can say is it was lively this morning. There was excitement. There was joy that was there. There was a responsiveness to God's word. There was an, an awareness of sin. Like you can look through that list and say, I can see and pinpoint those areas happening all around us right here. Jonathan Edwards was asked to define what revival looks like. And after studying the great movements of God, he listed five indicators that genuine revival is happening. That is, there's an elevation of the teachings, person, and challenges of Jesus. There's an elevation and greater emphasis placed upon Scripture. The people will confront and attack sin and Satan. Number four, people are led into truth to a further degree, and there is an increase in the believer's love of God and concern for the lost world. When those five pieces are going on, Jonathan Edwards said, that's revival. Isn't it interesting that historically, when you begin to read it, sometimes what they're describing from a revived standpoint is maybe not what we're looking for. And by the way, if you're chasing an experience with God, be careful. Satan can throw an experience your direction in a heartbeat. If all you're looking for is goosebumps on your arms and, you know, a little bit of excitement, those types of things, be careful. The enemy is more than willing to give people those types of an experience because it distracts them from what God is truly doing in that person's heart. So if you put the pieces together, you would see that there are pieces that seem to coincide or, or come together around revival. That is brokenness and confession of sin stronger desire for God's word and for truth. There's an elevation of the person in the teachings of Jesus. There is this growing engagement of prayer and dependence upon God. And by the way, I say growing engagement in prayer, not desire for prayer, not passion for prayer, not talk about prayer, not quotes about prayer, engagement in prayer. Sometimes we can talk a big prayer game and we live a shallow prayer life. So engagement in prayer, when, when people recognize their desperation for God, they engage in prayer. There's also a greater concern for the lost world and there's also the power of gospel testimony. That is both what Jesus did on the cross and for me when I got saved. 
and what Jesus is doing in my life and in my circle of friends right now. That's two sides of gospel story that need to go out into the world. So here's our next question. Do all Christians know when they became saved and or should they? Well, that's an interesting question. It comes to me in different ways, and I've often got this question from people as they will come into my office and they have deep concern about their personal testimony. And many times their concern comes because they heard somebody else give their story. And they heard somebody give their story and the person says something like, I got saved August the 2nd, 1998 in El Paso, Texas at 6.38 in the evening in a revival service. And the pastor was preaching out of John chapter 4. And this is what God was stirred in my heart at the time. And I can tell you the name and the phone number of the person who prayed with me at the altar. And God changed my life. And it was amazing. And so that's some people's story. And then other people... They're like, well, I thought I was saved until I heard Earl share his story right there. And now I'm questioning everything. I don't even know if I know Jesus right now. So sometimes their story could be very simple. And many times, many, many, many times, the story is very simple if they got saved at an early age. So sometimes their story is just, I've been a Christian for as long as I can remember. I grew up in a Christian home, Christian parents. I was in church constantly. My parents were teaching me scripture. They, they were sharing with me about what Jesus did. I was in Sunday school, and my Sunday school teachers taught me about heaven and hell. And, and I don't know when the exact time was. I just know I've placed faith in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I, I couldn't give you an exact date. All right. So for that person, sometimes the lack of details brings about maybe uh, fear, doubt, apprehension like maybe I'm not saved well I don't know if you all have noticed or not when I give my salvation story but here's what I'll tell people I was saved in the summer of 1994 in a hotel room in Clemson South Carolina do you know why I do not give an exact date because I don't know the exact date (laughs) do you know why I don't know the exact date I was by myself in a hotel room I knew that I was a sinner in need of a savior. I confessed my sin before God. God saved me in that hotel room. Nobody told me I needed to write the date down for future questions. (laughs) So sometimes the clarity of one's story has a lot to do with the people who were around them when they got saved. The big question is not, do you remember every detail about your salvation moment? The big question is, are you sure that you're saved? Uh, I, I would far rather somebody be a little bit foggy on the details of the past with deep certainty about their future than to have certainty about all the details of the past and to kind of be up in the air about, I'm not really sure if I'm saved or not. A saved person should be able to clearly answer these types of statements. Do you know that you are a sinner in need of a savior? Yes. 
Have you confessed your sin before God? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin? Yes. Do you believe he rose from the dead bodily three days later? Yes. Have you placed faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior? Yes. If you can say yes to those things, that's the most important part, the person knowing that they are saved. Here's our next one. Question number four is question about heaven. This person asked, or they started with a statement, I know better than to think our loved ones who have gone to heaven become angels or that they're always by our side. But is there any biblical evidence that they may be aware of us at all? Do they have a sense of our joys or accomplishments? Or are they rightly so focused on their joy in Jesus' presence? Um, one, there's a lot of honesty in that question, and there's a lot of spiritual depth in that question. So let me say it like this. Um, while there are differing opinions, even among scholars, there is enough what I would consider to be uncertainty and reasonable questions for me to say Scripture is not clear about the awareness of those who are in heaven about what is happening here on earth. And I want to try my best to explain that based on the passages that are used by some people to say those who have gone on before us, they know everything that's happening right now. Here's some of those pieces. Um, one, we would find that 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, it tells us about being clothed in our heavenly habitation, but here it talks about being released from the burdens of our mortality. In, in other words, when we are in heaven, there is a release from what's happening here. We also find in that same chapter, in verse number 8, it says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. In other words, when you're there, you're there. Okay, Focus is happening on what is there. Now, in Luke chapter 16, it gives the story of the rich man who was asking for somebody to go back to his relatives and warn them about hell so that they would not come to the same place. And sometimes that is used to the fact that people in heaven or people in hell, they are very aware of what's taking place around them. But there's nothing in that text that would suggest that he is currently looking at the state of his family as much as remembering his family's lack of spiritual interest in the past. Also, some people will teach that deceased loved ones who are in heaven can look down and they see everything that's happening today. And they would go back to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 as their reference. It says, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And they will say, well, that passage is telling us we are surrounded by these witnesses who are watching us run the race. The context is always important. Contextually, the witnesses in that verse are the faithful saints in Hebrews chapter 11 who have already run the race, and they are that cloud of witnesses. They are witnesses to the fact that their lives testify the fact that you can go through hard things and still remain faithful to God. And it lists all of these men and women of God over in the hall of faith found in Hebrews chapter 11. Now, if you're asking, is it possible 
that those who are in heaven know what's happening with loved ones here on earth? I, I think it's possible. I just don't want to give false hope if there's nothing in Scripture that would clearly say this is exactly what's happening. So it's also important here that we take a moment and we encourage people to avoid extreme sentimentalism when it comes to those who are in heaven. So there is nothing wrong with remembering our loved ones who have passed away. Nothing wrong with us rejoicing in the memories that God allowed us to have. But we have to be careful about the statements that we make that might not have biblical support. So statements like, Aunt Martha is now with the angels and she's got her wings. No, (laughs) ma'am. Maybe that's for Aunt Martha. Okay, listen. There's nothing in Scripture that says you become an angel when you die. Nothing. Angels are angels. People are people. Both are created beings. And yet, I am amazed by how many times I will hear people talk about that within the church and how many times I've sat in Christian funerals and the pastor has talked about the fact this person is now an angel in heaven. That's bad theology. We also have to be careful to not suggest that those who are in heaven are now there and they're looking down upon us. Again, that we don't know for sure if that's the case. So we have to just be careful about extreme sentimentalism. Our comfort is not in knowing that they can see us. Our comfort is in knowing they are with Jesus. And one day, we will be with Jesus with them, and nothing will separate us. That's where our comfort has to come from. Next piece. Closely related to the last one. Very simple question. Do all babies that die go to heaven? So while the Bible does not explicitly answer the question and say, yes, all children who die go to heaven. There is enough biblical support that you find throughout Scripture that I believe you can make a very strong case for the fact that those who die prior to birth, those who are infants when they pass away, and those who have mental disabilities are safe in the arms of God. So I want to give you those passages. The Bible is very clear that everyone apart from Jesus, is born with a sin nature. We find that Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. So if you're asking the question, does this person have a sin nature, then the answer is going to be yes. Now, while God created Adam and Eve in his image, after Adam and Eve sinned, it tells us in Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, that Adam fathered children in his own likeness. That is, afterwards, those who are born of human parents, they are born with that sin nature. You also see that mentioned over in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. So the Bible speaks also about children who do not know enough to reject wrong or choose right, found in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 16. Now, one of the reasons why 
the Bible tells us that people are guilty before God is because they refuse to acknowledge what can be clearly seen and clearly understood concerning God that is evident in nature itself. We find that over in Romans chapter 1. So those are all important passages that we need to bring in. Now, as some people see and they evaluate what has been created and they reject God, according to Romans 1, they are without excuse. So now this raises the question. If a child is too young to know right from wrong, if the child does not have the ability to reason about God, is the child exempted from future judgment? Another way of saying it would be, are babies responsible for not responding to the gospel if they are incapable of even understanding the gospel? There's an interesting story that I want to walk you through out of John chapter 9. This, this will be a good devotional piece for you this next week. In John 9, Jesus heals a man who was born blind. Great story. And after the man receives spiritual sight, or after he receives physical sight, he goes on and he wants to receive spiritual sight. And, but the story very clearly tells us this dude knew nothing about Jesus. He doesn't even know where Jesus is at. He, he knew his name, and that's about the extent of it. But as John chapter 9 continues to progress along, you'll find that the man has a greater understanding about the truth of who Jesus is, that Jesus is a prophet, John chapter 9, verse 17, and Jesus is from God, chapter 9, verse 33. The man then admits his need for a Savior, and he says, Lord, I believe, and then he worships Jesus, found in verse number 38. Now, just after that encounter, in verses 39 through 41, Jesus encounters some spiritually blind Pharisees. And all of this is connected together for a reason. He goes from physical sight for a man to spiritual sight. Then those who are born with a physical sight, but they don't have spiritual sight. So here's what Jesus says to the spiritually blind Pharisees. For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? Jesus said, here it is, this is big. If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. Did you get that? If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim that you can see, your guilt remains. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you were truly blind, if you were truly ignorant to your sin, you would not have guilt. But because of the fact that you recognize your sin and you're not ignorant of this, like you are guilty. The, the text, it gives us this understanding that God is not condemning a person for the things that they are unable to do. So James chapter 4, verse 17 is another great one to add in. To him who knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. There is this understanding of wrong and right, and there also needs to be a willful rejection that is now connected to sin. The inability to discern truth has led many to come to this theology, this belief that is referred to as the age of accountability. Also, another passage that comes up here is 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23. 
It's the story of David being reunited with his child after death. If you remember, it's the story of David as well as Bathsheba. There is a child that is born to them, and that child is the result of them having a sinful relationship. The child dies. And in verse 23, David says, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Okay, so David in this moment, and if you'll remember the story, he has been in the area of fasting and praying, and then he comes out of that, and he washes his face, and he starts eating, and, and there's joy, and the people are asking, like, why, why are you okay with this? And he basically says, I cannot, I, I, he cannot come back to me, but I can go to him. And there is a comfort that he takes in that. If that statement was merely about going to the grave, or both of them would be in death, it would bring no comfort. David believed that he would be reunited with this child who had passed away. There seems to be a very consistent testimony in Scripture that people are judged on the basis of sins committed voluntarily as well as consciously within the body. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, Revelation chapter 20. We're judged for the conscious rejection and divine revelation of God, what has been seen in nature. When we see it and we reject it, there is a judgment that comes as a result of that. We also understand there is no explicit account in Scripture of any judgment based on any other grounds. So all of those pieces would support the reasonable belief that unborn children, infants, those with mental disabilities will be in heaven under the grace of God. Now, I always want to point this out to my Reformed and Calvinistic brethren and sisters who might be in the room because I hold a lot of Reformed doctrine. And sometimes people want to argue this point and they'll go back and say, well, this is about election. This is about the elect. This is about predestined. I, I always like to point out that some of the most prominent Reformed and Calvinist leaders hold to the exact position that I just shared. If you want to list John MacArthur, John Piper, R.C. Sproul, Alistair Begg, Kevin DeYoung, and many others that go along that same line. If you want a further explanation of this, I would encourage you to pick up the book by John MacArthur entitled Safe in the Arms of God. It gives a lot of great detail there. All right, here is our last piece. Question number six, why doesn't the church speak out against the sexualization of children? This is evil leading to an ulterior motive behind it all that pedophilia should be okay. Um, for those who might have children in the room, just know I'm not getting into any details here, so let your heart kind of be at ease right now. In a very broad sense, the sexualization of children includes things like drag shows that are happening in our public libraries. Many times a drag queen reading hour that's taking place in our schools. Uh, right now, if you were to go on any news outlet, you will see that this last weekend there were multiple pride parades that were happening. There was one that is noted in New York in which the LGBTQ activists in New York chanted and it's over and over again we're here we're queer we're coming for your children 
Those are inflammatory remarks. Those are the pieces that cause angst and anger and resentment to begin to build in the hearts of those who not only are believers, but those who have more conservative beliefs and want to protect their children. Let me be clear and say, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Powers and principalities, rulers of heavenly places, if we pinpoint the wrong target, we are focusing our efforts in the wrong way. This is a spiritual issue that is broken by spiritual power that only God can bring. There's other areas in which there's a sexualization of children. That is explicit marketing that targets kids and young people through pop-up ads on phones, sexually explicit games, apps that make children more vulnerable to predators. Those are all pieces that fit into the story. This includes a sexual revolution that began back in the 70s and has left destruction for multiple generations since then. It includes publishers who print garbage targeting children. The godless worldviews that are confusing children about gender and about sex and about identity. All of those things are a part of this picture. Yes, there is a radicalization that is happening in culture. There is an attempt to lure children, lure those who are more vulnerable, those who are young, those who do not yet understand the ramifications of ideas, those who, who are the least protected. There is a, a focus that's happening. It is from the enemy. It is evil. It is wrong. There's no question about it. But let me also say, Many Christians, as well as churches, speak out against these things, but they do it in ways that sometimes does not feel as though the people are speaking out. Here's what I mean. The greatest way that you can address a problem like this is live the truth and share the gospel. These two pieces, live the truth and share the gospel. Now, why in the world would I bring that up? Like, that seems like a very weak approach to how do you deal with the sexualization of children. But here's the issue. There are always going to be other places that the enemy comes to attack. And if you're trying to pinpoint everything and have like a six-message series going through every church on this, all of a sudden, this is going to shift and there's going to be a new issue that pops up. And the issue is going to become, do people know the truth and do they understand the gospel? Because when people understand the truth of Scripture, they see the problem. And listen, and when people understand the gospel of Jesus, they know the solution. It's those two pieces have to be constantly brought to the forefront. Now, I will also say a part of the reason it might seem is though churches and others are not maybe as upset or engaged is a part of what I refer to as an individual's godly agitation. Each person has areas that just get under your skin sometimes more than other areas. And your areas might not be my areas. Mine might not be yours. You will begin to see what your godly agitation is because the moment it comes up, your blood gets hot. You get mad. 
You, you got to start praying like, God, calm me down, calm me down, because I'm about to blow up on somebody. And what you'll find is many times your godly agitation has everything to do with your journey. Let me give it to you like this. Those who grew up in a fatherless home have a godly agitation as men who are now leading their family because they know what it was like to be abandoned. There's a passion that comes with that that others might not have. Those who maybe work in a crisis pregnancy center because they have people in their family. Maybe it was even their story that they were addressing and, and were dealing with an unwanted pregnancy and they didn't know what to do and they were scared and, and somebody was there for them. They have a godly agitation when it comes to abortion and foster care that others might not have. And sometimes they're like, why is everybody not as passionate about this as what I am? Those people who work in homeless communities, many times they have a passion for homelessness. They're like, Jesus is the one who says, if you do this for the least of these, you've done it for me. Why is everybody not as agitated about this as what I am? And many times it's a part of their story. It's a part of their gifting. It's a part of how God has wired them. The point here is everyone cannot be as passionate about everything but if God has stirred your heart for a topic, he wants you to be engaged. And he wants you to pour into that particular area. Now, I am not saying for a moment the church does not need to address issues like this. What I am saying is there's always going to be other issues that come along as well. And there's people who are saying, why don't we give more emphasis to this or more emphasis to that? And as best we know how, we want to keep coming back and teaching truth and pointing to the gospel. Teach truth, point to the gospel. Teach truth, point to the gospel. How, this works for every one of those scenarios. So those are our questions for tonight. Um, let me also say that if, on this last question, if you want more information about what some groups are doing, I would encourage you, check out, and by the way, since you all cannot write these things fast enough, you just have to watch it on the video after it's done. Um, Ethics and Public Policy Center addresses a lot of child sexualization. D6 Family addresses a lot. Intercessors for America addresses a lot. Answers in Genesis answers a lot. The Heritage Foundation answers a lot. So there's a lot of outside uh, parachurch groups that are also working in order to address those pieces.